Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So we are um, moving into the, the sermon. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the book of Numbers. We're going to read the whole book of Numbers. So, um, no, not the whole, but we're going to go through it kind of quickly and focus on a couple of passages as we continue to watch in the Old Testament how it, it reveals to us the glory of God and God's plan of redemption. First, for certain individuals, how he brought them through trials and testing and punishments and judgments. And then how he chose a people for himself, the Abraham and his descendants, and how he's active in their lives as we go through the Old Testament in order to bring to pass in history the birth of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who was Jewish from the family of Abraham. And it's in Christ that all of us see the glory of God and have the potential for redemption by faith through grace. And so the whole Old Testament relates to our life when properly understood. Now, last week we looked and and we were looking at the book of Leviticus. And remember, Leviticus starts with this. It says, then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. The book of Leviticus paints a picture of how the, the, the people of Israel had followed God's rules. They had built a tabernacle, a tent in which to worship God. And when God's glory fell on that tent, it, it became such that no one could enter it without fear of death because they were impure, they, they were sinful, and, and they needed to have a way to deal with their sins and their impurities. And so God, in the book of Leviticus, gives them rituals, he gives them priests, and he gives them standards as well as a yearly day of sacrifice for sin that they might be made pure and holy in order to enter into his presence and worship him as he deserved in that tent of meeting, that tabernacle. And so by the time we get to the end of Leviticus, the, the Israelites, they are still camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. And Numbers begins, the book of Numbers begins with this verse. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai. So hopefully you can see with me the big shift that happens between the beginning of Leviticus and the beginning of Numbers. With these new practices that God had given his people, these new standards, the food codes, the morality codes, the sacrifices for sin and fellowship, God had made it possible for his people to enter into his presence. And so this big shift between Leviticus and Numbers is that as God's people begin to walk in holiness, their relationship with God grows even more intimate. So if you have your Bible open to the book of Numbers, we're going to be kind of skimming through and looking at it in its totality. So starting in chapter 1, what unfolds in chapter 1, verse 2 through 46, God tells Moses to count all the men who are over 20 and fit for war. And so that's called a census. We, we see census, census, census. What, what's 
That sounds like... Anyway, we see these things happen in Scripture in other places. It is a census that unfolds uh, and be, or begins the unfolding of the Gospel of Luke and, and the birth of Jesus and his story. But the census is taken to count how many men are able to go out and fight amongst the Israelites. And so at the end of this census, and they add up all of the men over 20 in each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel has 603,550 men who are over the age of 20 and fit for war. Now, if you think about that, that means that there are also children and women. So the, the number of Israelites is potentially in the millions, a couple million to three million Israelites camped out at the base of Mount Sinai that God is feeding every morning with manna and every night with quail and taking care of these folks and providing for them water. Just amazing stuff going on as God provides for his people. Now we call this a military census because it was focused on men who could fight. And the reason God wanted his people to know how many fighting men there were in their midst is because he's setting them up for a battle. He is setting them up to to begin the process of going into the promised land and defeating the pagan nations that lived there and claiming step by step the land of Canaan that God had promised first to Abraham and then to Isaac and then Jacob and now all of the descendants of Israel. And so God is preparing them to go to war. And he even gives them instructions on how to lay out their camp. The the tabernacle was supposed to be right in the middle of the camp with the Levites around the tabernacle, one of the 12 tribes. And then the other tribes were supposed to spread out around the tabernacle and and camp on different sides of the tabernacle. And so here's what scripture says in Numbers chapter 1, verses 52 through 54. It says, The Israelites are to camp by their military divisions, each man with his encampment and under his banner. The Levites are to camp around the tabernacle of the testimony and watch over it so that no wrath will fall on the Israelite community. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. God was so detailed in how he wanted his people to live in these military divisions that that he did. He laid out the camp that, that three of the tribes were supposed to camp to the south, three to the east, three to the west, three to the north. And then the tribe of Levi were supposed to be camping in the middle, right around the tabernacle, the place where the whole people could meet God face to face and hear him speak. And, and so they were establishing a structure and an order to life that had not existed previously. Up until this point, we can just imagine there were a couple... Siri found it on the web. That's my Siri this time. Siri keeps interrupting sermons. Uh, first, it was, it was Jay's last week, and it was mine this week. Sorry, guys. Uh, technology. It is both a gift and a curse. But anyway, God is setting up the Israelites to camp out in, in order, to leave in order, to, to be militarily engaged. You can imagine these millions of people who would have been just camping out willy-nilly, probably by family groups, down in the, the, the valleys below Mount Sinai. But now God had a specific order established for them that they might be a disciplined people militarily. And in fact, God actually had an order in which he wanted them to march. That six of the tribes are supposed to march first, 
the Levites and the temple were or the tabernacle were supposed to be in the middle, and then six of the other tribes were to take up the rear guard, so that the the tabernacle and all the the priests and the ones who would represent the people before God were in the center of the column when they went from camp to camp, and so they move from from uh, Sinai here soon, but first God has some things for them. He he wants to count the Levites and give each family in the the Levite tribe specific jobs. In uh, chapters 3 and 4, that's what occurs. In chapters 5 through 8, we see God giving more uh, opportunities for rituals and offerings and vows and means of consecrating themselves. And so God was still very serious about the means by which his people would stay holy, the means by which they would dedicate themselves to him in worship. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, we see occurring the second Passover. So what we can know about timing here is when the second Passover occurs, it is the end of the first year and the beginning of the second year that the, if, since the time the Israelites had left Egypt. So they were camped out at the base of this mountain, hearing God, building their camp, building their tabernacle, establishing their orders... For a year. And, and now, after this second Passover, we see that they begin to move from Sinai, where they had been camped out at the mountain of God, up into the outskirts of Canaan, the promised land. So they were heading north up through the, the uh, Sinai Peninsula and up to Israel, the, the area of Canaan. And, <coughs> excuse me, here's what God's word says in Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. During the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud was lifted up above the tabernacle of the testimony. The Israelites traveled on from the wilderness of Sinai, moving from one place to the next, <coughs> excuse me, until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran, which is outside of Canaan. And so we see that the, the cloud raises up. God's presence raises up from the tabernacle as a great cloud. It leads his people. And then it comes back to the tabernacle when they establish camp again. They slowly move from south to north in preparation for taking over the land that God was going to give them. And then... It continues in Scripture, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. We see as they're moving up and they're changing camps that, that the people aren't just satisfied to follow God and trust in His provision. Instead, they begin to complain before the Lord about their hardship. When the Lord heard, His anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was named Tabera because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. We see God is so, so concerned still with his holiness, with his people living pure lives, that when they begin to complain, he doesn't just go, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. Calm down. He instead sends fire around the, the outskirts of the camp. And the implication is that not just things, but people are consumed by this fire because of their complaining against God because of their, their act of rebellion in complaining. And so we see a couple other things happen. Uh, Moses' sister and brother rebel against Moses. God strikes his sister with leprosy, makes her skin as white as snow, and Moses pleads for her, and she is healed after seven days. 
So we see that the Israelites are not perfect people. They like to complain. They like to to wish that things were better. And they struggle with trusting God. And yet they still continue to follow him. And he still continues to love them, to lead them, to provide for them, and to be willing to carry out his promise to take them into the promised land that he was ready to give them. And so that brings us to the edge of the promised land as we get to chapter 13 in Numbers. And so if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, I'd encourage you to open them up to Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to look a little bit more intimately, a little bit more closely at chapters 13 and 14. So chapter 13 begins with God commanding Moses this. The Lord spoke to Moses. Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am going or I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. So 12 men, one from each tribe would be sent. Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. All the men were leaders in Israel. So God specifically tells Moses, first he sets up things. I'm getting ready to send you into the promised land and you're going to go take this over. You have 600,000 fighting men at the ready to begin to fulfill my promises. And I am going to go before you and I'm going to pave the way. And in order for you to see just how good it's going to be, I want you to send some guys to go check it out. And so we see the list in verses 4 through 16 of each of the members uh, of, of the tribes who are chosen and sent. And many of us will be familiar with a couple of these names. Caleb in verse 6. Caleb, son of Jephunneh from the tribe of Judah. And then in, 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 uh, we see, uh, where is he? Oh, sorry. Verse 8. Hosea, son of Nun from the tribe of Ephraim. And uh, then verse 16 tells us, these were the names of the men Moses sent to scout out the land. And Moses named, renamed Hosea, son of Nun, Joshua, which we probably are more familiar with that name, right? Everybody who has been to Sunday school, you've heard of those two guys that we mentioned, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. It's, you know, great names to name kids, but they're also two men who are chosen to go into the land of, that God was going to give the Israelites and to scout it out. Here's where we see uh, God, or Moses giving them the command in verse 17 through 20 of chapter 13. When Moses sent them to scout out the land of Canaan, he told them, go up this way to the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, Is the land they live in good or bad? In fact, I want you to know, are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So Moses sends these 12 spies in and he says, essentially, hey, is it as good as God says? I want you to go check it out. I want you to see some things like, are are the people strong? Are they weak? Do they live in cities that have fortified walls or just encampments like us? Are they tent dwellers or city dwellers? Uh, Is there stuff growing there? Bring back something delicious to show us all. So Moses is anticipating that there'll be good things here because God has always been promising that he will be taking his people into a land that flows with milk and honey. 
Now you might go, milk and honey, ah, what, why would, it's, it's like, are there like literal fountains? Is there a honey spring at the top of the mountain over here and a milk spring over there? Wow, that's pretty miraculous. No, we all get it. What it means is that the cows are going to go rich and lush and the sheep are going to grow great and there's going to be plenty of milk for everybody. Nobody will be wanting. And, and not only will there be just the basic provision, but there will also be a sweetness to life. That you will enjoy life in this land. And so when God talks about this land flowing with milk and honey, it is both literal. There was always going to be plenty of food and sweetness provided by God. But also it's, it's kind of figurative in that there will be no want and life will be pleasant in this new land. And so Moses, under God's orders, sends the spies out. And it, here is, is what it tells us they saw. If we look in verses 21... And following of numbers, it says, so they went up and scouted out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance to Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Shishai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were living. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they came to Eskel Valley, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, which was carried on a pole by two men. They also took some pomegranates and figs. That place was called Eskel Valley because the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting out the land. So it's just a quick look at the, the land that they scouted out. Many of us are familiar with the modern country of Israel. And they essentially, these 12 men, went from the very southern part of, of Israel all the way up to the very northernmost reaches of this land of Canaan. And they scouted it all out. And they saw exactly what God had promised. In fact, they got a cluster of grapes. You see that? They got a cluster of grapes. A single cluster of grapes that was so big, it had to be carried on a pole between two people. Now, I don't know if you've ever picked grapes. It just doesn't grow like that nowadays. You don't find grapes like that. I mean, you can go to Sam's Club and, you know, even some of the best containers of grapes are not like that. And, and so you, you see just how blessed and rich this land is. And so these spies, these 12 men that spent 40 days scouting out the land that God had promised to his people, they return with this huge cluster of grapes and some of its fruit. And here's what it says. It says, the men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. These 12 guys, they got to walk into what was essentially, for their day and age, a, a literal living experience of heaven. They got to see fruit that was just amazing. They saw provision. They saw a richness that was just waiting for them. In their report, they essentially say, everything is exactly like God promised. Everything is just like we had hoped it would be. And so they, they offer up this first bit of the report, but they go on and they continue to speak. And they say this, however, the people living in the land are strong 
And the cities are large and fortified. So they were walled cities and walled towns. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The, the Hethites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. So they see, and the land is just like God has promised. But then they begin to point out the things that scared them. The things that they thought were, were negatives. But after sharing this little bit of a however... We see that Caleb, one of the the twelve, he quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, let's go up now and take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. Caleb's like, I'm all in. This place is great. We need to leave today and we can do this. But Caleb is just one of the twelve spies. Ten of the others... Men who had gone up with him responded, we can't attack the people because they're stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. Now, there's lots of food. This place is amazing. But everybody is a giant. We even saw the the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers. And we must have seemed like the same to them. So it goes from, everything is just like God said, but it looks like it might be a little tough. And Caleb's like, no way! I'm all in! Let's do this, people! And they're like, actually, it's not just tough. They're giants! And there's no way we can do this! And we're just grasshoppers! And not the good kind, you know, like grasshopper, but, but like tiny little bugs to get squashed. And these people are giants. It's interesting how their story changes. It moves from this could be a challenge and the cities look kind of tough to they're giants. They begin to, to live in their fears so aggressively that they, they begin to exaggerate what they've seen. They begin to move beyond what's reality to to their own imaginations and saying, there's no way we can do this. Now, I wouldn't judge them in the sense that I too struggle with fear. I struggle with making a bigger deal of things than, than really they deserve. And you might do the same from time to time. But what's interesting about what God had already told these men what God had already told the Israelites about what he was going to do is that they had absolutely no reason to be afraid. None whatsoever. Here's what God had already said. In Exodus chapter 23, I just want you to listen to what what God told them he was going to do for them when it came to the land that he was going to take them into. I am going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion for my name is in him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow in worship to their gods and do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. 
Serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will remove illnesses from you. No woman will miscarry or be childless in your land. I will give you the full number of your days. I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and will throw into confusion all the nations you come to. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you in retreat. Here's the best part. I will send hornets in front of you, and they will drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hethites away from you. How cool is that? God is saying, I'm going to be with you. You're going to conquer these people through my power. I will conquer them. In fact, I want you to be so brave and bold, you know I'm going to go before you, and I'm sending hornets. How cool is that? How awesome that God would take and just use a, a creature like a hornet to drive the people out in front of the Israelites. It says, I, I will not drive them out ahead of you in a single year. Otherwise, the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. In other words, it's going to take some time. I will drive them out little by little ahead of you until you have become numerous and take possession of the land. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. For I will place the inhabitants of the land under your control and you will drive them out ahead of you. You must not make a covenant with their gods. They must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. So God had already said clearly to his people, when you get there, I'm going to do all the work, but you need to be faithful. You need to trust me. You've already seen what I can do. What, remember what they've seen. How many plagues were there? Ten. Ten plagues in the Exodus. They've seen bloody water flies and gnats coming out of nowhere. Frogs rising up out of the river. They've seen darkness and hail. They have seen so much. All done by the hand of God. And they were kept from being, uh, from being subject to any of it because of his grace toward them. And not only that, they actually got to cross through the Red Sea on dry land. Why would they not trust God? Why would they not take him at his word? He has every morning when they woke up, there was bread on the ground. And every night there was a bird to eat. God had provided for them. He had made water come from a rock. He had taken nasty water and turned it pure when Moses threw a stick in it. God had provided and done over and over again for them. They were, in fact, still sitting at the base of a mountain just a few days previous in which the very presence of God was up there and the presence of God had fallen on the tabernacle and they had seen lights and smoke and fire and heard his voice and trumpets. I mean, they had no reason to doubt God. And yet, these spies say, we can't do this. So how do the people respond? How do the people respond? Chapter 14 tells us this. It says, the whole community broke into loud cries and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in this wilderness. How dramatic. If you've ever had children, you know what this is like, right? Oh, I'm going to die. I have to clean my room. You, know, you, you get it. You know what it's like. You, you, you've been a child yourself. You've been that whiny kid. You know what it's like. And they're, they're like that. Oh, God, if only I was just dead instead of having to do what you say. 
Because it seems so big. It seems so impossible. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. They were so overwhelmed by their own fears and the circumstances that surrounded them. So unwilling to trust in the hand of God going before them that they looked around and said, we should just go back and be slaves. We should just give up. It was better. At least when we lived in Egypt, they fed us, even if they beat us, even if they took advantage of us, even if we were oppressed and slaves, at least we got to eat. How sad, huh? To see this unfold, to watch God's glory shine before them, to see fire and clouds and an angel leading them into the very edge of this land and so much is ready to be grabbed a hold of. God has promised it all to them and that he would do the work. And they say, we can't, we're scared. In fact, we want to go back to the way things used to be. Verses six through nine tell us that a couple of people though dissented. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who, who were among those who scouted out the land. They tore their clothes, a sign of, of repentance, a sign of, of mourning, actually, and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Stop living in your fears. Stop allowing all the what ifs to defeat you. Instead, if we are faithful to God, if we do what he says, he's going to do all the work. He's going to drive them out before us. Joshua and Caleb say this while the whole community threatened to stone them. So everybody hears Joshua and Caleb trying to encourage them. Don't be afraid. Follow God. He'll do the work in us. Everybody's like, nah, we don't like what you're saying. And they they pick up rocks and they're ready to stone them to death. And then God's glory appears over the tabernacle again. And there's a pause in what's going on. Chapter 14 continues to unfold and and God has some dialogue with Moses and Moses pleads for the people. God's ready to wipe them out, but Moses says, please don't wipe them out. Everyone would look at this and say, we told you so. He's not really that great of a God. He just wiped his people out. Instead, love your people. Save them. Well, God says, okay, I won't wipe them out. But there's going to be a consequence to this. In verses 21 through 23, God says this. Yet as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these 10 times and did not obey me, none of them will ever see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. God pronounces judgment for their faithlessness. And he says, everyone over 20 who's been counted in this census, none of them will live to see the promised land. 
all of them are going to get exactly what they wanted. Because they were crying out, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness, things would have been better. And God's judgment on them was, you will die in the wilderness just like you wanted. I'm going to turn you over to your own fears and your own desires. And you don't get to see what I've promised because you have failed to trust in me. And God goes on to speak. says, how long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? I've heard the Israelites' complaints that they make against me. God was unwilling to continue to allow the Israelites to simply complain and rebel without there being consequence. And that consequence was 40 years of wandering in the desert. Tell them, as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. I will do to you exactly as I heard you say. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. All of you who were registered in the census, the entire number of you 20 years old or more, because you have complained about me, I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun, I will bring your children, whom you said would become plunder into the land you rejected, and they will enjoy it. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness." You will bear the consequence of your iniquities 40 years based on the number of 40 days that you scouted the land. A year for each day. You will know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness and there they will die. God had done everything that needed to happen to bring his people into everything that he had promised for them. They got right to the border of it, and then they said, we don't trust you anymore. And he said, fine. Suffer the consequences of your choices. Your children will come into the promised land, but even they will suffer these coming 40 years. So we see that Numbers continues to unfold, and it actually accounts for all of those 40 years. We see God strike dead the the ten faithless spies. We see the Israelites say, oh, wait, 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 God. We actually meant we want to go into the promised land. We don't want to wander in the desert for 40 years. So they try and go in and take over an area on their own strength. Do you know what happens? They get their rear ends whipped. Why? Because God had already pronounced judgment on them. They had already decided to rebel and complain and not to trust in God, and God was going to give them their choice. And so they were routed, beat up, and sent out of the promised land. And so they begin to journey around through the wilderness. And when we talk about wilderness, it's, it's both dev- desert and scrub brush, and, and they're camping out in their, their formation for the next 40 years. And we see this story Repeat over and over again, they rebel, they complain, God provides, He protects them over and over again. In the book of Numbers, we see this story repeating itself because God loves His people and He is faithful to His people even when they are faithless. But He does allow them the consequences of their sinful choice. Uh, 
Interesting side story, if you were to turn quickly to Numbers chapter 21, some of you might wonder why I highlighted that. There was a curse of snakes. You might wonder what it is that the Israelites did to be cursed with poisonous snakes in their camp. Guess what? They spoke against God and Moses. They complained. And so God sent a curse of poisonous snakes in the camp. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and the snakes bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take away the snakes from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Now, why is the story of the bronze snake important here in Numbers? And this is just a quick aside. We're really focused more on the spies and on the people refusing to go in. But this, this bronze snake is, is critical for us to understand because Jesus actually speaks about it. He, he talks about if he is lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And what happens here is that everybody... When they were bitten, they would look up at the bronze snake. It was an act of faith. And by that act of faith, God healed them. Jesus says, just like God raised up a bronze snake and gave healing to everyone who responded to to their their, their, uh, bittenness by looking at the snake, God healed them. Someday I will be lifted up. And everyone who understands the poison in their life, everybody who understands the death that comes through sin, when they look at me, I'll heal them. The the bronze snake is a a beautiful picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. We see the Israelites continue. They worship a false god named Baal. God uh, does a second census, has Moses do a second census. And over over 40 years, they went from 603,000 people ready to fight to 601,000 people ready to fight. God preserved them. God kept them. Now, what's interesting is that whole generation previous died. In those 40 years. Joshua, son of Nun, he's, he's counted as a successor to Moses. And then 40 years later, they're camped across the Jordan River from the promised land, ready to go in again. But it took 40 years and a whole generation who was disobedient dying before it was time to come into the promise. Now, where does all of this bring us? Where does all of this teach us? What, what can we see in this of God's glory and the story of redemption? Well, we see God's glory shining through all of this. He was faithful. He was ready. He was wanting to bring his people into what he had promised them. And it was their failures, their fears, and their rebellion that led to 40 years of wandering. And what's interesting about it, it, was, it wasn't just the people who disobeyed that suffered. It was also their children and their grandchildren. The consequences of sin are long-lasting, and the consequences of rebellion are long-lasting, and yet the love of God lasts even longer. Moses, in speaking to God and pleading for the Israelites after they had rebelled against him, he reminds God what he has said about himself. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. But... He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third 
and fourth generation. Now, what does that mean? It means that God, He loves us. He wants to keep His promises. He wants to bring us into the promised land just like He did with the Israelites in Numbers. He has brought us to a precipice. So many of us, we are in a place where if we will only obey and move faithfully according to His Word, we will experience a land that flows with milk and honey. And yet we're afraid and we're unfaithful and we doubt But God is slow to anger. He's abounding in faithful love. And He still wants to bring us into these good things and these new places of salvation. But when we rebel and when we are faithless, it will have consequences. And the consequences of our sins today, parents, you can know this is true. Uh, Adults, we know it's true. We can look at our own parents and grandparents and see how their choices and their shortcomings and their sinful lives have had consequences even for us today. God will not leave rebellion and sin unpunished ultimately. And the consequences of that punishment can often last for generations. And so, when we watch this verse unfold, there's some things for you to understand. First of all, when we see who God is, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion. God loves us. And so, because of this love, we should be willing to trust God. The Israelites, when they get to the edge of the land of Canaan, they have every reason to trust God. You and I, especially if we are believers, we have every reason to trust God. Every reason to look at what He says and say it's true and it applies to my life and I should be faithful to Him. And and we're not talking about just in this big picture, get saved, follow Jesus, but we're talking about in every word of Scripture, He is true and He is trustworthy. So when it says things like this, don't be drunk with wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. It's for you and you should trust God. When he says, I want you to be faithful, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, love your, submit to your husbands even as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. These are the commands that bring us to the edge of a promised land, an edge of salvation, the edge of, of renewal in our life. And so often we hear these commands and we stand at the border of them. We go, no, nah, I don't like that. And we wander off and we say, I'm going to do my own thing, God. I'd rather die in rebellion than live a, a loving or submissive or honoring life. I want to do my own thing. And we see the consequences of that, don't we? We see it trickle down generation by generation when someone says of God's commands, I don't want to do that and I will not follow. But our God is worth trusting. And when he commands something, it is worth doing and doing faithfully and doing with all of our heart. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about being able to trust God. He says, in times of suffering, in times of struggle, Philippians 4.13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, he'll bring you to the border and then he will take you into the promised land if you're willing to follow and he will give you the strength to do it. And sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? 
I, I don't know, in a world like this, how can I be a good child? How can I be a good husband, a good wife? How can I be a good friend, a good business person? How can I avoid all of the things that are washing over me daily? How can I walk in obedience to God? He will give you the strength. He will equip you. It also says this, uh, verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And some, some preachers have taken and twisted that and said, that applies to money, and so everybody who's a Christian is going to have a really big bank account and nice cars. And that's not what that verse is talking about. He said, even when you're at the end of yourself, because the, the Philippian church, as we've talked about in our To Live series, they had given to the point of being impoverished. And Paul says to them, because you've been faithful, I know God will do, meet all your needs. Because you've been obedient, I know that you will have everything you need given to you by the hand of God. And so the call for all of us is to trust God. Because the the truth is that when we don't trust God, even as believers, if we come to the edge of a promised land and he says obey and we rebel and we go our own way, not only will we suffer, but our sin and our rebellion will have long-lasting consequences even when it's forgiven. And I hope you can, you can wrap your head around that. You can sin, you can rebel, you can come back to Christ. And scripture tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you stand before God forgiven of sin and guilt. But God will allow the consequences of our sins to continue. And what do I mean by that? So let's make it really simple. You sin. You get caught doing 75 and a 55. You, you confess your sin to God. Oh, Lord, I confess to you, I am one of the lead foot. You know, I, I have been given this, this gift of quick responses, and I try and exercise it faithfully. But, Lord, I have overdone it, and I have sinned, and I have been caught, and I regret it, and I, I repent of my sin. I will never drive above 65 ever again in a 55. And the Lord will say, you're forgiven, but try 55. But you know what's still going to be there? The consequence of your sin, that ticket that you got, the insurance rates going up, your parents taking away the car, if that's the position you're in in life. You see, the sin will be forgiven, but the consequences will be long-lasting. The rebellion can be removed in the sense of judgment with God, but the consequences of that will will continue, and sometimes for generations. And so when God brings us to a precipice of choice, He brings us to a place of following Him or not. He brings us to a place of applying His truth and living it out or rejecting it and, and doing our own thing. We need to understand He is worthy to be trusted And when we rebel, it will have long-lasting consequences for you, for your children, for your children's children, and sometimes for your children's children's children. And so we need to understand the weightiness of rebelling against God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Peter's writing to the church and he's saying, you will experience hard times. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
But please, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Peter says to the church, if you're suffering for the sake of Christ, he'll provide. If you're suffering because you're an idiot, stop it. Don't do it anymore. When he brings you to the border of a choice and he asks for your obedience, obey. It won't always result in in perfect everything, but you will be blessed. But when you rebel, well, that's just dumb. And there will be consequences. So this morning, a couple of questions as we wrap up our time together. Number one, where in your life might you be failing to trust God? And this is a big question. This is a huge question. But the, the thing is, is in our lives, we will again and again come to the border of a new area in our faith walk. God will bring us into a new land. He'll bring us into new places of maturity. And he will say to us, do this and you will be blessed. Obey me in this way and you will be blessed. You may be coming to the place in the the first time of your life. You're encountering that that first border where God has been at work in your heart. And he is saying, now it's time for you to make a profession of faith, to trust me with all of your life, to turn it all over to me through faith in my son, Jesus Christ, to be forgiven, to be brought into the family. And you're standing on the edge of that border and you're scared to death. But know if it's your day to cross over and you're faithful to do that, you will be blessed. But if you don't cross over that border into salvation, there will be consequences. You will be left in your sin and you will be wandering. And if you never come to Christ, you will never experience glory, His goodness. You will never experience eternity with Him. Others of us, we've been saved. We've crossed over into salvation. But He's brought us to new borders, new places. He's telling us to be faithful with our finances. He's telling us to be faithful in our relationships. He's telling us it's time for you to cleanse from your life the sexual impurity. It's time for you to cleanse from your life the drunkenness. It's time for you to begin to live as a proper husband, wife, child, boss, employee. Here's Scripture. Here's the promise. Here's the command. It's time for you to do it. And you're waiting to make a choice. You're not sure if you can trust him. He is worthy of your trust and he will provide. But if you fail to cross over into that new area of life, there will be consequences. And then the second question, what choices are you making right now that might have long-lasting consequences for both you and those who would come after you? What, what, what long-lasting choices are you making today? Because all of us, honestly, we're, we're making choices day by day that will affect not just our own lives, but also the lives of our, our families, our children, our friends, our church members. And it's important that we measure and understand just how big some of our choices can be in affecting the lives of others. I had a senior pastor once He asked the question, just how much will your sin cost me? The sin of the parents in numbers, their rebellion against God, cost their children 40 years in the wilderness. If they had only been faithful, the whole family would have been in promised land the next day. Where in your life might you be failing to trust God? He's brought you to a border and it's time to trust him. 
What choices are you making that might have long-lasting consequences for both you and those who come after you? Consider that today and act and react accordingly. Change your path. Choose the right way. Cross over into promised lands. Stop rebelling against God. And know that when you follow him faithfully, you will be blessed in that area of faithfulness. (laughs) Sorry, words sometimes fail, right? Would you join me in a word of prayer as our worship team comes forward to close us with our last song? Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the history of your people here in Numbers. We thank you that you have faithfully recorded what occurred those days that you provided and provided and and loved and cared and corrected and, and brought them right to the edge of promise. And it breaks our heart that they were so afraid and so lacking in trust that they died in wandering. Father God, as we read this story, may we not be people who die in wandering lives. But when you bring us to the border first of salvation and then to to life-changing choices and, and obedience, help us to be faithful to trust you, to know that when you promise salvation, it's true. When you promise households that are at peace, it's possible. When you promise businesses that are prospering and and faithful to your word that we can do it by your help and by your hand and help us to step across these these new borders of life every every time we come to them and and to trust in what you've told us and to believe that you will break down the barriers you'll destroy the enemies you'll help us to defeat that sin so that we can be blessed by your presence and walk in faithfulness Father, thank you for the promise that if we've already had an area of rebellion, if we come to you and confess that you will forgive and then give us the strength to deal with the consequences. So today, as we stand at the edge of differing and new lands, as we cope with the sins of our forefathers and our own sins and the consequences of it all, Help us to trust in you fully. Help us to turn more over to you. And this morning, if anyone needs to trust you for the first time, Jesus, we pray that they would feel, even in this moment, deep within themselves, a weight of conviction. A feeling that there is nothing that they can do other than trust you and confess you as their Lord and Savior. And that it must happen for their life to be complete. We pray that they would experience that today and that they would turn to someone they care for who cares for them and say, would you pray with me? Would you help me to to turn my life over to Jesus? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Spirit, for being at work in us. May we all learn how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've placed upon our lives as we come into new lands and squash the rebellions within our lives.
this time will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. promises. May you move across the border into new lands and trust in him because he is worthy of all of our trust. And he has done great things and will do even greater things when we follow after him in faithfulness. 
God bless you this week. May you see his face. May may you know his presence. May he go before you and behind you. And may you enter into new lands of blessing this week. See you guys next Sunday and then throughout the week at small groups. God bless you guys.